Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. Spotify has done a great job. They basically saved the music business. The problem is that doesn't mean they actually make any money. And it's an old story uh, of pioneers getting arrows in their backs. Oh, yeah. That's John Tinker, a research analyst at Gabellian Company. He's covered media and entertainment stocks for over 20 years. And on this episode, we discuss the prospects for Spotify, Live Nation, Sirius Pandora, iHeart, and Liberty Media, all music-related companies listed on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So you can buy or sell the stocks of these companies. And we'll talk about the spin-off of 50% or more of the world's largest music company, Universal Music Group, and the implications for Warner Music Group. I spoke with John just as iHeart was emerging from bankruptcy, so consider his comments on iHeart in that context. And please listen to an important disclosure at the end of this podcast. I asked John a basic question to start. John, what does a research analyst do, actually? That's a good question. It keeps shifting. But the basic idea of a research analyst is to follow a group of companies, bring hopefully a level of expertise, and then advise investors as to whether they should buy or sell the stocks. So in terms of buy and sell recommendations... Mm -hmm. How should a listener or a reader of your reports interpret a buy, sell, or hold recommendation? Cautiously. <laughs> the um, Part of the challenge is that a research analyst might be looking at a stock slightly differently. So for instance, there's a big gap between growth investors and value investors, whereby a growth investor is very focused on the top line, metrics with subscriber growth, far less concerned about profitability. Whereas a value investor, by the way, unfortunately, I'm more on the value side, has been out of fashion for about 11 years, uh-huh. is far more focused on the free cash flow and how solid the business is. So an analyst can totally legitimately recommend Spotify, for instance, because they see it as a growth story, whereas someone on the value side can totally legitimately say, you shouldn't buy it because they won't make any money. So you have to often look at where the analyst is coming from within context. We'll be talking about Spotify and a number of the other publicly held music-related entertainment stocks in this conversation. My first question is about Liberty Media, actually, which is a company that has a significant stake in a number of the companies that we'll be talking about. First of all, what is a tracking stock? Can you tell us what that is? A tracking stock in theory is a call on the increase in the value of the assets allocated to that specific um, division. So if you take Liberty Media, it's actually one corporate entity. And the theory is they have a lot of different assets, all of which different investors will have a different perspective on. By separating them, they're giving you the decision as to which one you actually want to invest in. So, for example, Liberty has tracking stocks in Formula One, in Sirius, in Sirius XM, um, the Atlanta Braves, and someone who wants to own Sirius may be very different than someone who wants to own a baseball team. But legally, they are part of the same entity, which provides for other rather more complicated benefits in terms of taxes. So we'll be coming back to Liberty as part of the discussion, since they do have a prominent role in a number of these companies. But let's talk, first of all, about SiriusXM and Pandora and go back to the time when the acquisition of Pandora by SiriusXM was announced. 
which is a deal that has now closed and the integration between the two companies is well underway. Why did SiriusXM buy Pandora? I think it was a terrific acquisition for strategic reasons. Sirius has done a great job of selling subscribers to new car owners, a great job of selling subscribers to used car owners. And it now has about 34 million subscribers. However, every year, up to 80% of new cars have a radio built into them, of which only 45% of people subscribe. So there are now what are euphemistically referred to as about 85 million zombie cars out there. What is that? A Sirius XM satellite radio paid for, but not being used. And every year, there will be another 7 or 8 million added, till in a few years' time, you have about 150 million of these radios, which probably aren't being used. So the question is, how can you get someone to use a service who doesn't want to pay? And that's where Pandora comes in. And Pandora is slightly different service historically from Sirius in that it was in the streaming business, the sounds like, as well as on demand. And it's perhaps lost touch with some of its younger audience. But in terms of the service they offer, it's extremely good. And if you can pump that through the Sirius XM system into the car and perhaps have more people listen to it and subscribe to Pandora, obviously you can then generate advertising revenue and you lock in more of those listeners. Pandora numbers, at least their top line listenership numbers, have been moving in a negative direction now for a while. Drifting, yes. Drift, okay. (laughs) I think you wrote recently that Pandora subs have dropped uh, 9% over the last year to 66 million and that listener hours dropped 10% in the last quarter and I think 6% in the previous quarter. Is listenership decline accelerating at Pandora? How should we read those numbers? I would say it's shifting in the streaming business, as in the streaming, streaming business, is extremely competitive. You have companies such as Spotify, which are doing an excellent job. Apple, which is picking up um, Amazon and Google, who uh, companies which are the ones you'd least like to compete against ever. And Pandora, which when it first came out was very innovative, and the sounds like and the whole giving you sort of what you want was terrific. And they basically got left behind. That said, they still have a really good service. And some people actually think they are um, very good at finding the songs you want, mm. some better than Spotify. But they have definitely lost the buzz in their way. They're also good at selling ads in audio. But in terms of the serious type audience, which is perhaps relatively well off, perhaps a little older, mm. not quite as hip and with it, um, this service can still resonate. So you have to shift from, of course, you're not going to beat Apple and Spotify to what percentage of those zombie car listeners could you actually get? And that is a different battleground because all the other companies are trying to get into the car. And obviously, my children are Bluetooth instantaneously when they get in, and I'm still hitting the button to listen to Sirius. Right. But that said, Sirius still has a tremendous position in the car and you know, half of radio listening is in the car. And so if Pandora can tap into that, then I think it'll be fine. You wrote a statistic that surprised me recently that Sirius XM plus Pandora is the largest subscription audio service in the United States. Yes. What are, the, what are the numbers? Sirius is now arguing that in conjunction with Pandora, they actually are the largest audio player in the U.S. with about 100 million monthly listeners. Of which it's about roughly a third paid and, and two-thirds, and two-thirds advertising. Right. Uh, does that mix change over time, do you think? Well, Sirius is 
really in the pay business. They, if you remember, they actually started in about 2001 and the same year as the iPod, if anyone can remember oh. iPods. <laughs> and the everybody, and this, of course, is when the music business was co- collapsing. Yeah. And somehow or other, they were able to charge from day one, unlike everybody else. Mm-hmm. And as I say, 34 million people now pay them every month. So they very much want to keep in the pay subscriber business. Right. However, there is a very large audience who will never want to pay. And that's really what they're trying to tap into now. I understand from reading your reports that one could buy the Liberty tracking stock of Sirius XM and own the company at a discount to how it's trading in the Sirius XM stock. This is tremendous opportunity, but it can get a little complicated. A lot of institutional investors say, here's Sirius, they're in a lot of cars, they throw off a lot of free cash flow, they're buying stock back, this is all I want to do. The strength of Liberty is they're very smart. You remember when they structured Sirius and they basically bought it for nothing when it was near bankruptcy. But as we discussed earlier with tracking stocks, they can get a little complicated. What is a tracking stock? What do I actually own? And because it's complicated, a lot of investors basically are saying, this is uninvestable. (laughs) I'm not really sure what I own. But if you are prepared to look through, you're basically buying Sirius for um, a 25% discount. And Liberty is also buying its own stock back. So they are effectively buying Sirius back more cheaply. Yes. Now, this will all come to a head as Liberty, which now owns about 68% of Sirius. So at some point, the two will have to merge and that discount will disappear. But if you actually read the Liberty Media 10K, this Mm. is hundreds of pages long with all these different divisions, which are public, and it's not sort of a straightforward, hey, this is what I own. Right. But that's what you do, presumably. And I think the fact that Berkshire Hathaway owned 14% is an endorsement that it has been figured out. No one can understand why the discount is so big. But in the old days, as in a year or two ago, the discount was about 10%. Now it's about 25%. And Liberty have referred to this as sort of being somewhat stubborn. (laughs) It is part of the challenge of being on Wall Street. Basically, say that's what makes the market. And if you can live with this, this is a tremendous opportunity. Now, I remember a year or so ago when Liberty lent a fair amount of money to iHeart as it was facing the bankruptcy that it has uh, it has now gone through and has emerged from. But I understand that, that Liberty also owns a sizable piece of iHeart equity as well. So how did that happen? Or how does that happen? Liberty are extremely good investors in difficult companies in trying times. Mm. And iHeart had $20 billion of debt. And debt's boring because it doesn't go away easily. <laughs> And they finally stubborn that way. <laughs> bit the bullet and um, filed for bankruptcy. And during that filing for bankruptcy, if you own the debt, that is then converted to equity. When you go through the court proceedings and the negotiations with the other debt holders, there's a chance to change control. And Liberty had various proposals to increase the position and effectively take control of iHeart huh. at, of course, a low price. And the other creditors were less interested in taking that low price. Mm. It's part of a problem of success of Liberty that now they're known to be smart and effective. People are a little more focused when they negotiate with them. The assumption is Liberty will be doing a good deal. Mm. 
And I think that Mr. Pittman persuaded the creditors that he had kept the company going, notwithstanding $20 billion of debt. And he was the guy who was going to bring it back to recovery without that overhang. So they are now in the process of coming public again. The debt's been significantly reduced, which will help them a lot in terms of just running their business because everything for the last few years was towards paying that interest. And now they are aggressively moving in terms of their leading company in the um, podcast business, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. which you know well. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, They have a lot of live events. They're totally tapped into social media. And they're trying to position radio as being complementary to Spotify. Spotify is about your individual listening to your music. Radio, and to quote the S1, is about companionship. You right. connect with presenters. They have a lot of um, strong uh, DJs and it's a totally different experience. And if and remember, people still like live <laughs> and that's the business they're really in. And they are by far and away the largest radio broadcaster. They're now reaching you know, sort of a couple hundred million plus people. So it's an interesting opportunity. If you were Liberty, owning Sirius, owning Pandora, and owning iHeart would have given you a strong position in the traditional businesses. And that would have complemented everything. And if you were Liberty, for instance, one of the things that worked so well with Sirius was taking Howard Stern on terrestrial radio, putting him on pay. And if you look at uh, some of the other commentators that uh, iHeart have, a Rush Limbaugh, for instance, you could begin to do the same thing. And obviously, the music business is only going to become more competitive. Some would say it's a commodity business. But half of what Sirius do is not music. Yes. And that's where they have you locked. And the more personalities you can get, the better your position. iHeart, as I understand it, is positioning the new company as being not so much a direct competitor of Spotify and Apple Music, which they are arguing is a replacement for CD purchases and permanent download purchases like we used to do in the iTunes Music Store, and is much more about companionship, I think is the word that they used. Do you buy it? It's a good story. (laughs) And there is some truth to that. The issue, the challenge I think they'll face going forward is that as technology keeps improving, the car becomes more connected. The other services, the Spotify's, with their curated playlists, Apple, with more of a DJ-oriented service, will also have access to those listeners. And the challenge will be that it will become more competitive in the car, which is the primary battleground where iHeart is particularly strong at the moment. And yet we look at our own behavior or the behavior of our kids in the car, and they are going right for their phones to either Bluetooth or or directly auxiliary line in their phones to the car in order to play their preferred playlists. Correct. But radio still has incredible reach, 90%. Mm-hmm. Even my kids listen to radio. Yep. It's surprising how many people still actually enjoy radio. There's something fun in terms of it's still the, the largest form of discovery for music. It's far more instantaneous and spontaneous. And that's, say, the attraction of live, unlike a curated playlist, which may be very cleverly targeted at you, yes. but is not quite as interactive. Liberty figures into Live Nation as well. How is that? Live Nation is uh, owned by Liberty about 34%. You go back about 10 years or so live, which actually was um, originally in the old Clear Channel, now iHeart, and Ticketmaster were fighting with each other and they decided to merge. Mm -hmm. And Liberty had an investment in Ticketmaster. This rolled over. There was a lot of politicking 
and basically Liberty increased their stake, uh, partly by buying off buying out uh, Irving Azoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they've bought again in the market. Hence, they're coming to about a third of the company. Uh, and they have two members on the board, um, but it is actually run by Live Nation. But it in many ways reflects Liberty's whole approach, which is we're the money guys, you run it. Yeah. So I'm sure there's sometimes tension between Live Nation and Liberty, strong people. But Liberty is a far better investor than, for instance, um, having Carl Icahn come calling on you. So Liberty are far more focused on the long term and providing you're building the business. They're very supportive. And I think Live Nation uh, management have been quite well rewarded for that. Last year, Live Nation produced 35,000 concerts with 4,000 artists attended by 93 million people in 42 countries, yes. just gigantic numbers, right? All in, uh, about 11 billion in revenue and about a billion in EBITDA. Yeah. And we tend to think about the revenue by source in Live Nation in three big chunks, right? The concerts business, the sponsorship yes. business, and the and the ticketing business. And they also manage about 500 artists as well. Perhaps that's rolled into the concerts business. I'm not sure. What's your view on the drivers of those three areas of Live Nation's business? Where Live Nation were particularly effective is that the concert business is basically a terrible business. The artist basically gets to keep the revenue. You have to fight to get them, give them an advance, Mm -hmm. which you sometimes lose. And so historically, you've made between a 1% and 5% margin. On concert Concert. promotion. Huge revenues, no money. Because music lovers want to listen to the artists, not to Live Nation. So they have all the leverage. Where Live with Clever is that, A, they figured out that millennials love experiences. So this was an interesting area. And in this increasingly fragmented media world that we're in, they basically said, let's get into the sponsorship business in size. And of course, you can only offer the sponsorship because you're in the concert business. And if you are strong in the festival business, as Live Nation is, it's very hard for the artist who might be one of 30 to say that sponsorship revenue is mine. Unlike if you're just helping one artist tour, they can, and they're very well managed and can argue, hey, that's my sponsorship. Um, but in the festivals, it really, no, it's Live Nations. So yeah. they, they can get a, an 80% margin on this business, which is obviously attractive. So it's not that large, particularly relative to concerts, but it's extremely profitable. And I think the sponsors are benefiting because they are associated with the right level engagement and hipness and and activity in a way that they can't do in so many other ways now. Live Nation are the the 800-pound gorilla in the global concert business, and they own the 800-pound gorilla in the ticketing business. What do we think about the fundamentals in the ticketing business? Well, ticketing is interesting because um, everyone's trying to get into it, including Amazon. And this is one of the few businesses where, to date, Amazon have not made any headway. And I think what Live Nation Ticketmaster have done, which was to take a somewhat clunky service, which was basically hated by people. If you remember, one of the reasons why Ticketmaster was set up is that they actually rebate half the ticket fee back to the concert stadium owner. So everyone is upset with Ticketmaster because of these fees, but they're actually giving half of it to the concert stadium owner, therefore, and they're, but they're taking the heat for it. Yeah. <laughs> so they're the one, they were sort of paid to be the bad guy. What they've done is take that position and really gone tech. Uh, and now sort of half their business is digital. Mm. A, it's just easier. You can order on your phone. The ticket's on your phone. You don't lose it. But this also means that 
Ticketmaster now know who you are. There are positives and negatives of this, but they can basically hit you up for a beer during the concert. Uh -huh. Or have you done this? And that data is incredibly valuable to their sponsors. So yet again, you can take the ticketing business, which may not be that exciting because of the strength of the, the owner of the concert hall, mm. but you can leverage it in, other, in, it in other ways. And where it's been particularly effective is that they now have a verified fan program. And as you know, when you go online to buy the ticket, you can never get it because the bots from Eastern Europe are just moving faster than you. And what Ticketmaster Live have basically done is to set up a system whereby you have to prove you are a fan, which can then increase the odds dramatically that the fan will actually get the ticket. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the fan may then resell it. If you get a $100 ticket, of course, if you're offered 2000 But the fan then gets the proceeds, not a bot. And I think Live have been so successful that even someone like Taylor Swift, yeah. who traditionally is AEG, <laughs> basically said, I want to go through Ticketmaster because this way I know my fans will actually get to see me. The problem the band faces is they want to treat their fans well and not charge them too much. Right. The problem is, if you're a big band, by definition, there are more fans trying to get into your concert than there are seats. So that means the price will go up. And there's always someone who will pay a couple of thousand bucks to be in the front row, get to meet the band, and so on. And what Ticketmaster have done is persuaded the bands to charge that now. Because say, look, if you charge 100 bucks, StubHub is just going to get $2,000 off of someone. This way, you get to keep the money because it's your concert. And then, by the way, this allows you to charge less at the back of the house for your actual fan fans, and particularly as we now know who they are. It's really a very simple arbitrage. You've taken away the excess demand for a limited supply, and you've actually given it to the person who's performing. How about that? Which is uh, not always something that's happened in the music business. <laughs> You have a uh, a buy recommendation on Live Nation. Yes. What's the primary driver of confidence in your own mind for Live Nation? Live have been uh, totally focused on what they do. One of the problems a lot of companies is they get distracted. Live basically, they're in the concert business, they manage the bands, they sell the tickets, they sell the sponsorship, they're back in the concert business. And what they've done is to take this, what they call the flywheel, and they've basically taken it international. And, this, and it's the same approach, which is buy the local promoter, buy the ticketing company. The difference is that in the old days, a record company would generally determine where the artists would tour, which mm -hmm. would be where records sold. Well, people aren't buying records. And the artists are now totally up to speed on social media. That often rank that highest uh, users. And an artist can now say, no, no, I'm actually hot in Brazil. I don't need to go to Germany. Yeah. And... A live nation can facilitate that. A global tour. Yes. But they can figure out which is the market where the artist actually wants to go. And so the business has become more global, and live nation are at the center of that. The key is they, they keep focused on what they're doing, and you don't come in and find out they've gone and you know uh, diversified into a business where they really don't have any strength. And they have brought tremendous scale to the business. And arguably, they have about a third of the share worldwide. So if they're competing against, say, you know, the local Brazilian concert promoter, the local guy really doesn't have a chance if it's a big band coming in on a global tour. And they often want to buy the best local promoter out because mm. this is a global business, but it's still executed on the ground. Let's go to Spotify yes. for a minute. So Spotify rather famously went public in a direct listing last year. Yes. And 
in the time since then, Spotify grew premium subscriptions by 32% year over year. Why the hold recommendation? Spotify has done a great job. They basically save the music business. The problem is that doesn't mean they actually make any money. And there's an old story uh, of pioneers getting arrows in their backs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it was a chicken and egg because they need the content to be able to stream. The record companies need them because it opens up new markets. And the whole point of 30, 40, 50 million songs now for $10 a month is that it's a terrific value proposition to the consumer. So yeah. piracy has dra dropped dramatically. Um, you partly circumnavigated Apple, which had split the CD and ruined the business for the record companies. The problem is that you still need the record companies. Yeah. <laughs> and catalog sales have a huge percentage of the market because people tend to re-listen to what they like. And it's very hard to get around that. And the record companies want to be paid. As do the artists. As do the artists. And one of the comps that Spotify tried to use is Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Netflix didn't make any money for a long time and is now huge globally. The difference is that Netflix was able to transition into owning their own content. So originally they paid the studios a lot of money. And the studios said, thank you. You don't know what you're doing. It's great, but keep paying us. And then as Netflix figured out the business, they disintermediated the studios by going to the talent. So you only need a few shows on a network. Now, the problem is if you're Spotify, having a few artists is not going to make any difference. Right. So it's very hard to get around the record companies. And there are only three, and they all know what they're doing. So this argues in favor of Spotify's recent acquisitions in the podcast space, perhaps. Well, podcasting is a really interesting area. It's one of the things where most people actually don't know how to find the podcast. Right. They're not monetized well, so I'm sure you're fully up to speed on these issues. <laughs> <laughs> but not everyone is. <laughs> um, but it's a business with only probably about... I think the numbers are about maybe 400 million in revenue, yeah. but forecasts to increase quite dramatically. And I think their goal is to have 20% or so of their business be podcast. And this is clever because the cost of the content is low mm -hmm. and it also begins to circumnavigate the record companies. The problem is other people are figuring this out as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Pandora are getting into podcasts yeah. and everybody else because mm -hmm. this is the next sort of area. Um, iHeart has, has a radio channel, which is exclusively podcast. Yeah. And the second problem is you still have to negotiate with the record companies as to what that revenue split will be because they will not want to carve podcasts out. So you may have found a clever way of reducing your cost of content, right. but you're still paying a percentage of your revenue overall revenue company. So it's a interesting area, but I'm not sure if it actually changes their business. In the U.S., uh, Apple is outperforming Spotify yes. in terms of number of paid subscriptions. Right. How is that, given the amount of mindshare that uh, Spotify has in the space? It helps to be bundled. The iPhone is not that good a phone, but everyone's locked in. Mm -hmm. And you come with their music system, you hit the button, and that's it. And it really is Steve Jobs so effectively uh, did you know, simplicity. Yes. And Apple just works, even mm -hmm. if it's not that good. And because music is to some extent commoditized, even though Spotify may be better, how much better is it? So the argument is no one actually uses Apple Maps. You yeah. know, so you can actually be better than Apple. But it is not that easy to differentiate yourself with music if everyone's offering the same 40 million songs or so. What about Amazon in this space, Amazon Music? They sell to a different consumer than Spotify 
have, at least so far. Should we discount Amazon as a streaming music provider or not? Oh, I think they're up to about 30 million subscribers. Um, So they're relatively small. Um, Unfortunately, Amazon probably is the company one would least like to compete against. They have a different business model. They're basically trying to get prime subscribers. And they are prepared to subsidize other services to get prime. So you're not actually competing on a level playing field. And Amazon, they're now in the business of putting speakers in your home. And music listening is perhaps up 30% in the last couple of years. So um, it's now a lot easier to listen to music. So the good news is the overall market is expanding. The problem is that Amazon's not going to go away. They're now talking about lowering... They're differentiating. They're going to have a high-end streaming service for audio files, and mm-hmm. then they're going to have a lower end. And Amazon are quite ruthless when it comes to price wars, which they can win because they have a deeper wallet. You really don't want to have to fight Amazon. And that, that's one of, I think, Spotify's biggest problems, because even though Amazon may not be doing a very good job now, they're going to just keep going. And if you talk about Google, which I think the numbers came out recently, we're talking about 15 million subscribers. And they're saying it's not true and so on. But the idea of paying for a Google service is something I don't think most people will do. But you still have YouTube, which is the most listened to service, and it's free. Just before Spotify went public last year, there was an equity swap between Spotify and what became Tencent Music. How do you think about Tencent, the streaming music giant of China and perhaps other locations around the world in this context of the competition to dominate streaming music worldwide? Well, Tencent Music has roughly two-thirds share in China. Yeah. Um, only a handful of actual subscribers, and their market is nascent. If you look at the movie exhibition market in China, it's now only second to the States. And in a country where everyone was supposed to pirate everything and never pay for anything, if you actually give them the product they want, such as Avengers Endgame, they will pay. On the music side, it's far earlier, but Tencent have basically come up with a clever way of It's basically like a dating online service with music. So it's a little different. A lot of karaoke, singing along, and now you can gift bands, singers who you like. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying you're paying, which people refuse to do, you're sending a gift that's perceived as your choice. Right. Think of it as a a digital tip jar. But they basically control China. So if you are a Western company, you're basically on the outside. So they've all licensed to Tencent. And there's frankly not much they can do about it. And the question is, as music keeps getting bigger and people keep paying, does Tencent actually have any ambitions outside of China? And they have about 10% of Spotify, but it was a complicated swap stock. So I'll take my expensive stock and swap with your expensive stock. It's not actually a lot of cash. And that's where the, the rubber hits the road. The question is, are they actually prepared to spend anything? Or are they quite content to own China? which at some point, like the movie business, could really become quite significant. You made a statement a couple of minutes ago about streaming being up about 30% uh, a year in the last couple of years. And in fact, just this week, the number of streams this week, year over year, is up 32%. The tide is rising for everyone who owns music rights in the world. And, well, Vivendi, the company that owns Universal Music Group, the world's largest music company, has announced an intention to sell half or at least half of their stake in UMG. Why would Vivendi sell now? 
Well, first of all, I would differentiate between Vivendi and UMG. UMG has done a terrific job. Leading record company, benefited, helped streaming more than anybody else. Their shares moving up. As by contrast, Sony is drifting. And UMG only looks like it's getting stronger. But that's very different from the corporate parent, mm. Vivendi. And Vivendi, in turn, is controlled by Bellore. This is a public company that's going to celebrate in the next couple of years or so its 200th anniversary. It's also in the transportation business, ports in Africa, electric batteries. Yeah. We used to think of it as the French water company. And right. has a long, interesting history. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with UMG. And Mr. Vincent Bellore, who... Effectively, he's technically ceding power to his children, but is basically still running Bellore. Is playing a different game. Vivendi is a company where he has managed to accumulate about 29% of the voting stock, about 25% of the equity. And he's very effectively taking it over without paying. The, he's actually often referred to as the John Malone, Liberty of, uh, of France. And what they recently announced was the, the, a 25% share buyback. And if the shareholders have approved this, which will then mean that if they sell part of the music business, they'll get some cash in, they'll buy stock back, and Bellore's percent, and Bellore will not tender, and their 30% will then go to 40% of the company. So they're very effectively taking it over. So the real question is, what does Bellore actually want to do with Vivendi? Because Universal Music Group is sort of a financing technique. So when you look at UMG, Obviously, Wall Street has some staggering numbers out there. People are talking you know, $40 billion plus, we're talking multiples of EBITDA up to 38 times, mm. which from Wall Street is high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to put it in perspective, um, Sony paid about 19 times for the 60% of EMI music they didn't own. And that would be high, but for a premium business, library would be acceptable. It's explainable. So officially, Vivendi is selling up to 50%. But Mr. Bellore has told people now he is actually prepared to sell all of it. Mm. Because if you're talking about a valuation of up to $40 billion, very few people are going to give you $19.9 billion <laughs> and no control. The other way they can go is just to sell a small percentage, but at a high valuation, mm. which comes back to the whole conversation of Bellore and Vivendi, which is he looks like he's trying to actually increase his ownership of Vivendi. That's the primary goal. So he doesn't actually need to sell all of UMG. He just needs to sell part of it. And even though music is now probably the hottest space on the entertainment side from the Wall Street perspective, as we've discussed, the, the next few years look to be terrific. That doesn't mean there are people out there with the cash to buy a universal music group. Because it's still a relatively sort of specialist business without that many players. Who could buy Universal? I'm not sure, actually. I think that's part of the problem. Um, everyone mentions Liberty. Yeah. Well, uh, Liberty are a terrific company. They don't actually have a lot of cash. They're fully invested. Yeah. And if you're talking, you know, tens of billions, by the way, Liberty, you know, tend to buy when there's blood in the waters. <laughs> yes. And actually, they were interested in it when there was a lawsuit between them over a tax issue going back years. And that all got resolved because Liberty decided to buy Formula One instead. How's that worked out? I call it a work in progress. Uh -huh. um, it's actually working reasonably well in that Formula One is a third largest sport globally. So it's quite not big in the States, mm. but huge globally. And they never sold sponsorship. And Liberty sponsorship, Live Nation, it's the same story. The, they also have a huge opportunity with OTT. 
yeah. whereby the knack is you want to broaden your audience with traditional media on TV. But if you can then focus in on a narrow audience who love the sport, they will pay you a lot. The, the tension they're having is that Formula One is dependent upon the driving teams and the car owners. And the two leading car companies are Mercedes and Ferrari. And as you may know, Mercedes is quite a large company in Germany. <laughs> And any, and any red-blooded Italian wants to own a Ferrari. So if you look at Netflix's recent show, Drive to Succeed, which is about last year's Formula One race, it's a terrific show. A lot of people who watch it are now getting interested in Formula One. It's part of the whole strength of liberty of let's get the interest, we'll broaden it, get more sponsorship dollars and so forth. And But you've got to educate people. The problem with the show is that neither Ferrari nor Mercedes decided to cooperate. Because they're not actually in the business of promoting Formula One. Right. They're in the business of winning on Sunday, selling on Monday, but Ferraris. <laughs> yes. So this year there are negotiations as Netflix will film the second series. And the question is, can you bring in Ferrari and Mercedes? And if you can, and then you have everyone at the same table and they begin to believe that Liberty can actually increase the size of the business then they may be prepared to leave behind perhaps some of the more European marketing techniques and take a more American approach. Back to UMG, yes. though, for uh, just a second. Yes. If not Liberty, then who? Is there a financial buyer out there? I mean, it's hard to imagine justifying as a value investor a you know 38 times yes. EBITDA multiple. There are a number of banks who are obviously trying to get the business, and I'm sure they are devoting tremendous resources to finding people. But we just touched on Tencent Music. Yes. Now, Tencent Music is 27, 28 billion market cap. It's quite sizable, but they don't have that kind of money. Now, Tencent does, yeah. but historically, Tencent have not made large acquisitions. Mm. And yet again, do they want to make an acquisition? in scale outside of China, particularly given they're primarily a gaming company. If you look at people like Massa, Japanese, it's a large investment vehicle. He perhaps is making slightly more VC type investors. And if you look at an Apple, Apple of course can do whatever they want, as can Amazon, as can Google. I'm not sure if actually buying a record company is really what they want to do. Historically, I'll phrase this delicately, they've stolen the content. Uh, <laughs> they haven't yeah. necessarily bought it and paid for it. So that would be a large change. Now, Apple paid $3 billion for Beats, and I think none of the employees, founders of Beats were with Apple anymore. So they run their business with their own set of objectives. They're moving into the content side now, but if they did buy it, then I think the other two record companies would not be particularly happy to sell their product to Apple. So there'd be a high, a high price. Do you think that a buyer will be found for Universal? Well, the banks are very motivated. Yeah. So the, the problem if you're private equity is you're in the sort of, generally speaking, single-digit multiples. My guess is they will be able to find a minority buyer, which will then finance the share buyback at Vivendi. When that deal happens, do you think that other transactions that have been maybe waiting to happen and sitting on the sidelines could come to market? What about Warner Music Group? Well, Mr. Blavatnik has uh, I mean, a very timely acquisition. Uh, the Warner Music numbers which are out recently, they're very good. It's far more of a bite-sized deal. Yeah. You're not paying for the success of UMG, but they are a very strong number three, and that is far more digestible. However, when you are in the entertainment business, it can be very hard to leave. Yeah. It's a fun business. Yeah. and you really Especially when things are going well. And you get invited to a better class of party. And it's hard to see why you would necessarily want to leave the business right now. Because even though 
revenues overall have improved, and I think like, sort of the last three, four years really, really ticked up. The business is still a lot lower than it was 20 years ago. So there's tremendous room to go. And markets like India are still opening up, competitive, a lot of local players. There don't appear to be any major negatives on the horizon, which would cause one to want to exit. There's Sony, where um, the speculation this week was that Third Point, who had a few years ago taken a position and had activated, um, are back. And the speculation is they are talking in a more friendly manner and perhaps trying to help Sony focus. And Sony is, as you remember back in the day, Sony was Apple and they lost their way. They very nearly went bankrupt. But uh, Sony Music is the world's second largest record company. It's about 20% of their cash flow. Sony's trading at about six and a half times to put, put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Hence an activist's interest in the company. That said, I don't think Sony have any intention of selling their record company. John Tinker, this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope that you will uh, join us again soon. Thank you. John Tinker is a research analyst at G Research, LLC. Mr. Tinker certifies that the views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect his personal views about the subject companies and their securities. He has not been, is not, and will not be receiving direct or indirect compensation for expressing any specific recommendations or views in this podcast. In addition, he has not received any compensation from any of the subject companies in the previous 12 months. As of May 31st, 2019, G Research LLC or affiliated companies beneficially own on behalf of their investment advisory clients or otherwise 21.43% of Liberty Braves Group Class A and 17.47% of Class C, 1.41% of Liberty Formula One Class A and less than 1% of Class C, and less than 1% of all other companies mentioned. Mr. Tinker or members of his household own shares of Liberty Sirius, Liberty Formula One, Liberty Braves, and Tencent Music. He is not aware of any subject companies being a client of G Research LLC in the 12 months preceding the publication or distribution of a research report. He is not aware of compensation received by G Research or any affiliate from subject companies in the previous 12 months. And finally, he does not know of any other material conflict of interest of the analyst or G Research LLC and its affiliates. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Our producer and editor for this episode was Nick Sadler. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. Music